If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Fordard. It is estimated that the little sewer hole sent over 300 million liters of wastewater flowing into Hamilton Harbor. And that doesn't include those toilets that had handles in need of jiggling. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, man. Forget the hole. What about those handles that you got to jiggle them or they keep running? How many extra... You know, you got to look at the micro aspect of this, too. It's just not the big hole in, in, in all that. All right, let's move on. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.09. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today, great to have you aboard. Quebec is getting a unique deal when it comes to carbon tax from the federal governments. This has been hard to understand at the best of times. Um, you know, every province, depending on if they're participating at the federal level or not, has uh, a wee bit different deal. To talk more about all this, Franco Terrazano, uh, is with us now from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am. Thanks for having me on today, Scott. So how do these deals uh, deals differ from province to province? Uh, I guess depending upon if the province is involved with the federal government or not, how these deals are hammered out. What are your thoughts? How, how do you explain this? Yeah, so for a long time, you're right, this has been really complicated, right? Because we've had a patchwork of different carbon tax rates and carbon tax schemes all across Canada. But next year, it's actually getting pretty simple. And the more simple it gets, the more clear that there is a fundamental unfairness when it comes to how the federal government is taxing us at the pumps and increasing our home heating bills. Let me just break it down. Beginning next year, every single province, or I should say nine of the 10 provinces, have to pay the federal government's higher carbon tax rate. One province, uh, Quebec, our friends in Quebec, uh, they do not have to pay the higher carbon tax rate. So next year, everyone across Canada, outside Quebec, including right here in Ontario, uh, we're going to have to pay about 14 cents per litre at the pumps. In 2030, we're going to have to pay 37 cents per litre at the pumps. That's according to the Trudeau government's carbon tax. In Quebec, they, they are not having to pay this higher rate. They're currently paying 9 cents per litre this year. Next year, they just have to pay higher than 5 cents per litre. And by 2030 they're paying 23 cents per liter of gas. So I know I threw a lot of numbers at you there, but here's the bottom point, is that everyone else living everywhere else in Canada, outside of Quebec, has to pay a higher carbon tax. And why is that? How come they have a sweeter deal than the rest? Yeah, why is that? That is the great question. And you know what? We don't know. We don't know. The Trudeau government hasn't been clear about it. Um, The one reason that we can see is that this is really about politics, not the environment. Now, granted, Quebec does have a different cap-and-trade carbon tax scheme than the rest of Canada, but hold on a second, because Nova Scotia also had a very similar, or currently has a very similar cap-and-trade carbon tax as Quebec does. But just last week, Trudeau announced that the Nova Scotia model, uh, he he doesn't want it there anymore, and that he's raising the carbon tax in Nova Scotia. And that's coming despite the fact that Nova Scotia is one of the leading provinces when it comes to reducing emissions. Nova Scotia um, is seeing their emissions decline 36% since 2005, one of the leaders in Canada. So Trudeau is not letting Nova Scotia continue with their approach, but he's letting Quebec continue with its approach, which which is the special deal. Has uh, Quebec seen its emissions drop any more, any less than anyone else? Quebec's emissions have dropped, um, not as high as Nova Scotia's. Now, here's another thing to consider. Um, We actually have a bunch of data, or governments have published a bunch of data, on carbon taxes and provincial emissions. Well, the, the, the province that has had the highest carbon tax in Canada for years is British Columbia. But we've seen emissions continue to go up on the West Coast, In fact, we saw emissions increase about 11% over four years, over the last four years, right before the pandemic and the lockdowns in British Columbia. So we saw BC have the highest carbon tax in Canada for years, but emissions continue to go up. Nova Scotia, on the other hand, uh, had the lowest carbon tax 
on gasoline in Canada while emissions went down. So again, this, this, you ask us, well, why is Trudeau giving Quebec a special deal on carbon taxes? Well, it looks like it's more about politics than it is the environment. Uh, is you know we're certainly seeing uh, through inflation and what we've been going through in a post-pandemic world, uh, Canadians are feeling the pinch. Is, is it just uh, dead in the water to think that this government this government will do anything to lower any sort of carbon tax, whether it's making a, a, a difference or not? Um, it, it just seems that they're not interested in this conversation. It does seem that way, doesn't it? I mean, it even seems a little bit worse because remember the whole point of the carbon tax is to increase the price of gasoline, is to make it more expensive to heat your home. So, and, and I say this, uh, you know, I do believe that every time members of the federal government, the governing party, drive by a gas station, they see these high pump prices, I think they're patting themselves on the back. Um, but, you know, not only is the federal government raising the carbon tax, remember, by 2030, we're paying 37 cents per liter of gas just in the carbon tax. But next year, the federal government is also bringing in a second carbon tax through fuel regulations. And now we did a deep dive on the government's own analysis. And according to the government, the people who are going to be made worse off from the second carbon tax are people who are already struggling because they live on lower and middle incomes, uh, including people who are already struggling with energy poverty, single mothers, and of course, seniors who are living on fixed income. So What's so unfortunate is that we've seen the federal government continue to raise the carbon tax during the pandemic when people lost their job or their business. We've seen the federal government continue to raise the carbon tax as Canadians grapple with nearly 40-year high inflation. And we've seen the federal government continue to raise the carbon tax when many of our peer countries have been cutting taxes. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, talking about the carbon tax. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. We talk about space on this show quite a bit because, you know, every so often you just got to get out and see what's going on outside the stratosphere. And students from McMaster University will be at the Canadian Space Agency this week to finalize the preparation of their CubeSat, a type of miniaturized satellite for launch into space. The purpose of the satellite is to further our understanding of long-term exposure to space radiation. To find out more, Taryn Ginter is with us, Operation Team Lead at the McMaster Satellite Team, uh, New Dose Project, uh, McMaster University, and is with us now. Taryn, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, thank you so much. I hope you're well as well. So far, so good. So first of all, how did you get involved in this? How did Matt get involved in this? So this goes back to 2015, actually, when everything first started. And that's when the PIs first thought of putting in an application and starting to build a satellite. I got involved in 2020 when I heard about the team through a guest lecturer and decided to apply because I'm really interested in space exploration. And then it's just been amazing from there. Uh, What is it about space that intrigues you? Oh, everything, to be honest. I mean, I'm in physics at McMaster and interdisciplinary science. And so I think pretty much everything about the mission itself and everything about space research really appeals to me. So talk about CubeSat. What is this? What is? What are you trying to do? And, and, and what's the mission here, per se? Yeah, absolutely. So our project was selected in 2018 to be part of the Canadian CubeSat project. So this offers a chance for post-secondary students to design, build, launch, and operate a mini satellite. So our mission is, as you already mentioned, to look at the effects of ionizing radiation on the human body. I mean, upcoming space flight and deep space missions are becoming a little bit more realistic the further we go, but there's a really big difference in the environment. So our goal is to get a sense of those radiation differences, and hopefully we can implement better safety precautions so that astronauts are protected. So what is the team at Mac doing with the Canadian Space Agency this week? This week is uh, the integration of the Canadian Space Agency. So there are seven CubeSat projects that are headed to the CSA for the final steps that will confirm that our satellite is qualified to launch into space and be deployed from the International Space Station. So they're not only taking it up, they're actually going to launch this thing. Yeah, they're actually launching it from the International Space Station. So we will be headed up in February Um, The launch will be happening from Florida, going up on one of the SpaceX Dragon ships, I believe, and then up to the International Space Station from there. 
Holy smokes. So uh, give us an idea of what this uh, miniaturized satellite is, the size of it, what it is capable of doing. Yeah, absolutely. So it's about the size of a loaf of bread. It really is quite small. And what our satellite looks like from the outside is mostly solar panels, to be honest, because we need a way of charging it. But inside of the satellite, we have our charged and neutral particle tissue equivalent proportional counter, which is quite a mouthful, but it allows for the discrimination of a dose from charged and neutral particles. So this is the actual payload of our satellite that will be looking at the radiation in low Earth orbit and then sending that information back down to ground station at McMaster. I just still can't get over the fact that their universities are launching their own satellites into space. I know. It's incredible. So um, uh, so what happens once it gets to the space station and once it is eventually put into orbit? Um, what is the role then with the university? What do you do then? What, what happens after that, uh, providing all of this happens? Yes. So for, from our perspective, once it's launched, the satellite has approximately one year in orbit. That's the lifetime that we have anticipated after it's been deployed. And so at that point, we have a ground station at McMaster. We actually have antennas set up on the roof of one of the engineering buildings, and we have our ground station. So that's where we will be receiving the data. And that's when sort of the science side takes over a bit from more of the engineering perspective when the satellite is still being built. At this point, we have the data, so then we can start looking at the contributions for the in vivo doses from those charged and neutral particles that are contributing to the overall radiation dose. Uh, Any chance this might have a little camera on it, or is that uh, out of the realm right now? Unfortunately, ours does not have a camera on it, um, but hopefully we'll still be able to get some pretty cool content as it's being deployed. And so uh, a year uh, this is supposed to uh, uh, be in operation for. We know that in the past, sometimes these things may go longer than that. Are you hoping to get a minimum of a year and anything after you get after that is icing on the cake? I think that's pretty much the goal at this point. That's our, our anticipated lifetime. But if it can last any longer, that would be amazing. So why are you studying the long-term exposure to space radiation? What are you hoping to find out uh, with this? So the big thing is that space radiation is actually very different from naturally occurring radiation on Earth. So we have what's called the magnetosphere that plays a really big role in protecting us here on Earth from radiation. Astronauts don't have that same protection, and so they're exposed to a higher radiation dose, but it's also different from the dose we get on Earth. And there are different health risks. So long-term exposure, we're going to have risks like cancer, cataracts, central nervous system damage, acute radiation sickness, and much more. And as upcoming spaceflight is hoping to go for longer deep space missions, we need to consider the difference in the environment. So hopefully the data that we're collecting will give us a better sense of the charged and neutral particle contributions to the radiation dose so that we can implement better safety measures. Uh, You're saying that, Max, one of several universities that are involved in various projects like this, are they they all searching for the same thing or do they have their own little uh, objectives, purposes? They all have different objectives and purposes. So I know that some of them, there are some satellites coming from out west. Um, One of them is going to be looking at tracking wildfires. One of them is going to be looking at, I think, projecting artwork that's coming from different communities in uh, northern Canada. So all the different CubeSats have different missions, which is really exciting as well. Do you get to go to the launch? Hopefully, fingers crossed. (laughs) Yeah, fingers crossed. I would love to be there. It is in Florida. Um, Right now, it's slotted for February 19th. So luckily for us at McMaster, most of the team is made of students. That's our reading week. So fingers crossed we can make it. Oh, wouldn't that be perfect? I'm guessing as a student, just a trip to the Canadian Space Agency is, is pretty cool. It is. And we've had some amazing opportunities uh, to meet astronauts, to do all sorts of cool events with the CSA. And the team itself is mostly made up of students. I mean, we do have the PIs as well, but we have about 60 members that are on the team right now. And most of them are from a different background uh, across McMaster. And so for all of us, it's a really great opportunity to take place in such an exciting mission. 
Taryn, if they asked you to go up and sit beside or hold the uh, satellite on the way up, would you go? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Good for you. Uh, so when will you know more uh, whether you're successful with this and whether it's going up? Uh, when or, or is that is that for sure? Um, this week, we have our final steps to confirm, so everything should be good to go, but we should have that definite confirmation after the integration process at CSA this week. All right. Well, good luck. Congratulations to you. Taryn Ginter with us, Operations Team Lead for McMaster's Interdisciplinary Satellite Team, New Dose Project, McMaster University. They're off to the Canadian Space Agency. And then hopefully from there, uh, their project gets sent to the International Space Station. Taryn, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you so much for having me. Don't forget that uh, you can check out the CHML, uh, all the information about the CHML Children's Fund, the Tree of Hope campaign, on our website at 900chml.com. And since it is Giving Tuesday, uh, time to blow our own horn and uh, talk about what is coming up with the CHML Children's Fund and this year's edition of the Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. Joining us now, Olivia Mackay, president of the CHML Children's Fund, and with us now. Olivia, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. How are you, Scott? So far, so good. So uh, here we are. Um, I guess this would be the third one through the pandemic that we're doing. Are we back to normal yet? Are, are things close to the way they were operating before uh, the global pandemic? Or, or are we still juggling things here? Are we still trying to figure out which way's up? I think we're getting back to normal. Like donations are slowly going up. We haven't raised as much as we'd like to. But on the uh, plus side, we're able to have the charities come into the station now and pick up toys where the past few years we've been begging them for the charities. And it's just great that they can come into the lobby, check around the tree because they know their kids best so they can pick out the toys best needed for the children. That was always one of the really cool things, too, is uh, if you've ever been to the lobby of CHML, it's it's a, a, a tall bill. It's a tall foyer sort of thing. We have a giant Christmas tree there and you would walk in in the morning and literally the gifts would be right out to the front door. And then you come down later in the afternoon and they'd be all gone and then reverse again. It's amazing how the, the stuff just comes in and out of that place or how it has over the years. That's back. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. I've already had three charities come in so far, and it's pretty early for them to come in because we have the toys. I have another charity coming in tomorrow. So it's nice to see that we're able to help the charities earlier this year than previous years. And uh, there's so many ways to give now, including texting and such. Uh, let's go by and, and through the list of such uh, and how we can help uh, help uh, help the kids. So you can text the word DONATE to 30333. You can visit 900chml.com. You can donate online via the PayPal Giving Fund or CanadaHelps.org. You can also um, visit us at the radio station anytime, uh, Tuesday to Thursday. We're open 9 to 5 to drop off a donation. Uh, you can also mail a check to us. All the information is at 900chml.com. As well, we'll be on site on Friday with you. Uh, you'll be broadcasting live and we'll be on site to uh, light the tree at 6.30. And then this weekend, we're there for Blitz Weekend at CS Limerich. And we'll be on the second floor uh, across from the elevator. Is it better to give money or toys? We have this uh, discussion when it comes to the food banks. Is it better to deliver product or, or cash? What, what works? For both of us, I, I believe it's equally uh, needed. So for toys, we do need toys because the charities are looking for toys. So when we're not able to donate as much as charities would like us to, we supplement that with toys. So we need the funding as well as we need the product. So we need toys for under the tree for the charities to supplement for their Christmas parties. And when I say toys as well, we're also looking for, for babies and food and diapers uh, formula, and then we look for the older kids. When I say older, like 12, 12 to 18, where we're looking for those, you know, those body kits or makeup kits or hair dryers, books, games, and stuff like that. Because I find babies and older kids are the ones that kind of are forgotten. Mm, good point. All right, so three cent a liter D, uh, three cent a liter day. Pioneers returning again this year. Yeah. So on uh, Wednesday, December fourteenth, three cents from every liter. Pioneer, Pioneer will donate to the uh, Children's Fund. Last year, they were able to donate over $20,000 to us, um, and it's just a great partnership we have with them, so very excited to have them on board. So that's another way you can donate, just by filling up your tank on Pioneer on Wednesday, December the 14th. And it's great to have Leggett back again this year. They're a big part of all of this. 
Yes, so Leggett is another big sponsor of ours. Great to have them. They are sponsoring and donating $15,000 to the Children's Fund on this Giving Tuesday. So we appreciate their support. They're a big sponsor of the Christmas Tree of Hope and the Toy Drive. Do you find that the asks are bigger this year, Olivia, or in the past couple of years? Because we're hearing so much. I mean, you're hearing how, uh, obviously, there's shortages, whether it's in virtually every industry, whether it's uh, employees or product or even volunteers for charities. They're getting hit hard, too, as well through all this. Yeah, and, you know, it's the donor fatigue, and we, we are aware of that. And for us, it's, it's not so much as the charities are asking for more money. It's actually that the charities are coming back and asking for money. So we've had two years where we've had certain charities not ask us for any funding just because they haven't had those Christmas parties. They weren't able to fulfill, you know, those on-site presents and stuff like that. So now instead of, you know, maybe the 25 charities that we got last year, we're going to probably get up to 35, 40 this year asking for funding. So we're, we're getting more of the ask from the charities and we're prepared for that and ready for it. And then uh, we understand that it's coming and, you know, we've prepared, we have the funding for it and just try to, you know, get as much as we can out to these uh, charities, to the community, so to the kids this Christmas. Olivia Mackay with us, President CHML Children's Fund. Olivia, again, another bad year. Good luck to, uh, good luck to you and everybody that's uh, helping out and rowing all in the same direction. Couldn't do it without you guys. Congratulations. Good luck this year. Thank you so much. I just want to say thank you to everyone who's donated so far. And don't forget, coming up on Friday, the live broadcast from Gore Park as we light the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope. And then Saturday at Lime Ridge for Blitz Weekend as uh, we kick off the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign and help uh, all of the charities that uh, lean on the CHML Children's Fund to help them get through the year. Help us help the kids. More details at 900CHML.com. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, we remember uh, way back when, a few weeks, months ago, uh, the Premier and the Prime Minister meeting talking about electric vehicle manufacturing assembly in Ontario with various plants, and then, of course, not only assembling these things, but also being involved in the minerals needed uh, for battery, manufacture, storage, that sort of thing, uh, and then of course the conversation moving to northern Ontario where there's this area called the Ring of Fire which is very rich in minerals needed for all of this and now we're reading an article in the Globe and Mail today top federal government officials cast doubt on Ontario's Ring of Fire mining development Uh, a top Canadian federal government official raised doubts about whether Ontario's Ring of Fire region will ever be developed pouring cold water on a critical minerals project that the provincial government is champion and the United States administration has interest in funding Uh, uh, Jeff Labonte, Assistant Professor, Minister for Lands and Mineral Resources, uh, Natural Resources Canada, told senior le- leadership at a First Nation meeting that it's possible no mines will be built in the region and that there is no guarantee Ottawa will ever come forward with the roughly $1 billion needed in funding for development for this to proceed. Uh, his skepticism comes as a key environmental study in the Ring of Fire faces a multi-year uh, delay uh, during a standoff between Ottawa and the government over its funding. What does all of that mean as we rush to, uh, you know, gather and find out more information and in industry involving renewable energy? It seems we take a step forward and maybe a step back. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing great, thank you. Glad to be here. So what are your thoughts on all this? Is this a pipe dream or is this going to happen one day? Well, well, Scott, before I answer that question, if you don't mind, I'd like to go back and then we can go forward. The Ring of Fire first was discussed in 2007, so quick math, 15 years ago. What is it? It's an area of northern Ontario, 400 kilometers north of Thunder Bay, so it's quite a bit north. And it's also in a wetlands area uh, near James Bay. Uh, And so there there were prospectors, people who make a living out of this, who went up there, dug some areas and said, hey, guess what? We found a a strip about 20 kilometers long that has the potential for things like copper and nickel and palladium and vanadium and zinc, all kinds of great minerals that we can use in manufacturing and today rely on less than North American sources for these. In other words, we're kind of at the mercy of the world 
let's develop this. And so this was first championed, and I hate to even go back this far, but this was first championed by a provincial liberal government who thought this might be a great way to, to win over some voters in the North who tend to vote for the NDP. Let's try to develop this. Big problem. Big problem. There is no infrastructure up there. There's no easy electricity development. There is no internet. There are no highways. There's no housing. So if you're going to develop this as a mine, you've got to have all this infrastructure. What does that mean? It means you've got to do environmental assessments. So for the better part of the last 15 years, one environmental assessment after another has looked at this land. Of course, much of this land has First Nations claims on it. So the First Nations have said, well, we, we might agree with this as long as we get to help you know, develop this and share in the spoils. And why this uh, deputy minister seemed to be so negative, this key environmental assessment on the road that has to be built, because you need the road to have trucks taking the ore and bringing it to be smelted and so on and so forth. Uh, the key environmental assessment now is not going to be done until the year 2029. 2029. That's seven more years from now before the environmental assessment is done, let alone a shovel go in the ground. So when he says it will never be developed, I think he's not really saying forever and ever and ever, thousands of years, but in the foreseeable future, i.e. the next decade, this remains a great dream rather than a reality. Why the seven-year delay before we even get to the assessment? Well, again, believe it or not, Scott, it's not a seven-year delay. It's a three-and-a-half-year delay. The environmental assessment was projected to be completed by 2025, and one of the First Nations groups who's doing this assessment has asked for an extension of three-and-a-half years because it's so complicated and there are so many dimensions. And again, there are wetlands involved, so there are animals involved, endangered species, you name it. It, they just asked for a three and a half year extension, but that takes it to 2029. And then who knows what happens? I think it's a lovely idea. And I, I think it's an idea that we should pursue, but I don't think anyone should feel that this is something that's around the corner. I, I hate to draw the parallel, but this is a bit like Hamilton's LRT project. <laughs> it sounds a bit like a pipeline that will never get built. It could be that as well, or, or some other wonderful vision from Elon Musk. It's a great idea, but it's in just a terrible, terrible location to get to. And so uh, there have been, at this point, nearly half a billion, $500 million, have been spent on various studies, test pits, test drilling sites, and what have you. Um, and one of the key companies involved, it was called Noront, Noront Developments, was sold to an Australian company who does a lot of stuff in mining. I believe it's pronounced Wailu. And they have been trying to heat things up, trying to get the governments to act. Uh, you're correct. Uh, about seven months ago or whenever we had the provincial election, maybe it was five months ago, Doug Ford talked about this as a key part of his campaign plank, even went so far as to say that he was prepared to drive the bulldozers himself to build this road at all costs. It's a wonderful, colorful picture. It's a great thing to say, but he can't do it until the assessments are done. I don't think anything's going to happen on this in this decade. So uh, how can we ever get a mine built if it's going to take this long to get an assessment on the dang road to even get to the place? Like, Correct. honestly. And, and, and Scott, you ask a question that's been asked by many people about Canada. If we are serious about taking some roles on the world stage, whether it is about bringing our oil to market or whether it's bringing our gas to market or whether it is bringing our minerals to market, we have to be able to tackle these large infrastructure projects in a better way than we have. And again, levels of government seem to say the right thing. You might remember the federal government has created an infrastructure bank. And the idea was this bank would cut through red tape to help finance these kinds of projects. But even though this is what they say, the reality is we just don't seem to be able to get these kinds of things done. Mm. And I think it's, again, because we're a democracy. We need to consult and encourage and listen and hear all this. But that is a messy and slow process. Um, and, and I'm not saying I'm a fan of Doug Ford or any political leader, but sometimes a leader who just jumps in full feet ahead, doesn't really give a damn which way it goes. They might be able to get something done than those who have to consult and consult and consult. Ah, lots of democracies in the world. Uh, Marvin Ryder, professor at the Group School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. 
We're seeing plenty of unrest in uh, China, uh, obviously, um, uh, I guess, over the course of the global pandemic. They've had an incredibly difficult time um, instead of uh, mass vaccination and, and what we've seen the rest of the world go through. Um, China has adopted a zero COVID policy. Uh, and if there is any sort of detection at all, literally apartment blocks and such are closed down. Uh, people are not allowed to come and go. And now that is... Uh, in many ways, having uh, effects on not only the people of China, but also the industry of China, as um, they just do not seem to be getting a grip on uh, COVID-19 or the reaction of people. Beijing and Shanghai have seen protests. Uh, We've seen the blank uh, sheets of paper. We'll talk about that, too. Is this a turning point, or is it just a matter of time before she crushes this as well? Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, and with us now. Elliot, thank Thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. How significant is this? We're seeing people uh, say that she should step down, citizens of China and such. Obviously, uh, lots of protesting going on. Is this going to run its course, or is how significant is this? I think the significance uh, lies not in whether it succeeds in overthrowing the government, which is not likely, but uh, a rather different area altogether. What these protests do, I think, is not threaten the power of the party or the party state, but I do think it threatens its legitimacy. Until now, this uh, Communist Party, particularly under Xi Jinping, but he was building on the on his uh, predecessors, particularly Deng Xiaoping's success in bringing a lot of economic prosperity to China, and as he says, with the national great national rejuvenation. China is back. We've had a century of, hum- of humiliation. Now we're back, and thanks uh, the party for that. And you should be you should be thankful. What they fear the most is a color revolution. That is, and that was uh, you and I talked about it at the time. That was actually written in in February to the joint statement with Mr. Putin and Xi Jinping meeting. No color revolutions. That means popular uprising, people's uprising of. Uh, so that the regime would feel threatened. They have great capacity to put down dissent. This is a surveillance state. It's got uh, almost unlimited resources, not only for all those surveillance cameras and and, uh, the most advanced technology for facial recognition, but just putting people in the streets to put down protest. But if you put it down, that does not mean you have succeeded. It wasn't that long ago, Elliot, you and I were talking about how she wanted to be installed for life, and that's what he was working towards. My, what has changed in a short period of time? Yes. um, Although we're talking about China, and I'm an Asianist, there's something almost Greek about this, you know, hubris uh, first, and then hubris preceding the fall. He is now master of his everything that he surveys. He's got the... 20th Party Congress behind him and all his people in place. And not shortly, not long after that, you have these protests. These protests are, um, I think, likely not to continue. They've, the capacity of the state to put them down is very high. So they're, what's happening right now in a nutshell is, Scott, is that they're clamping down. The state is clamping down on protest while simultaneously backing off on some of the lockdown measures, which hmm. is leading to the widespread protest. But then the protests have now gone from uh, primarily saying we're tired of the lockdowns and your your draconian measures, but we're also tired of you. Uh, we often talk about China, the next superpower, if not already. How can the world view them uh, as that when, you know, let's go back to the beginning of COVID-19 and failure to uh, keep the food chain free of contamination, then uh, lack of vaccine or proper vaccine or certainly the new mRNA vaccines and, and a zero tolerance policy. How does the world look at this when most of the world has moved on, yet China is still struggling. Yes, um, there's multiple issues there. The stability and fragility of the regime really is what we're talking about. Internationally, China's reputation has plummeted. We know that, and Canada has played a role in that because we were suffering because of the two Michael situation. But basically, China has come increasingly into focus around the world under Xi Jinping's wolf warrior diplomacy and his aggressiveness. 
how he has chosen to demonstrate they're a superpower internationally is uh, coming into focus and, and not in a positive way. But now domestically as well, what kind of what kind of great government are they are they providing here? I've suggested all along that although he's talked about this being a Marxist-Leninist regime with Chinese characteristics, it's really a Confucian regime with Leninist characteristics or Stalinist characteristics. You know, the great emperor presiding in a benevolent fashion over the people who will adore him and uh, let him rule forever. But that has a built-in fail-safe as well. If you assume the mandate of heaven, you have to perform and deliver. The key thing here, I think, to watch for is that the social contract, Scott, between the Communist Party and the people of China has been essentially, in a nutshell, prosperity for their silence. Now, with the COVID uh, restrictions and the fact that the uh, behavior toward the Uyghurs is attracting attention in the Han Chinese part, the, the, the cooperation across ethnic lines over the, in this protest is very striking indeed. So the, is, is the social contract under threat now? We political scientists have been saying all along, and this has also been state policy, you know, once there's a middle class, Scott, they're going to, they're, they're going to demand democracy and freedom. And that was mm. implicit in letting the, um, letting the Chinese join the global economy and, and uh, all of its, the IMF and others in particular, the, <laughs> and get general agreement to talk and talk, and all of its successors. Now we're seeing the result that China is indeed an economic superpower, and this is how they're behaving. So there is a certain fragility being demonstrated, but Xi Jinping is in no imminent problems in terms of being overthrown, but the legitimacy of his entire activities is the enterprise of Xi Jinping, I think, is now being brought into question in terms of its legitimacy. On that note, is is China losing an opportunity here? I mean, it wasn't that long ago. China was the golden goose. Everybody wanted to be a part of this. Now it's their public enemy. Um, are they losing an opportunity here? Does the, does the Chinese citizenry uh, realize the wrong hand may be being played here? We'll have to see what the Chinese citizenry uh, knows, understands, and, and uh, reacts against. Keeping in mind yeah. the great firewall of China has really kind of extraordinarily in our modern age controlled the flow of information in and out of China and inside China in a way you couldn't think possible. One of the impacts of what we're seeing in front of us right now is the overflow, <laughs> the capacity to control information with this widespread protest. And I think that's one of the key features we should remind ourselves that's gone from a room to the capital of Xinjiang, but all across the country. Uh, the fact that it's that widespread has really overwhelmed the censors, at least initially. But the capacity for the censors to plunge back in is there. The state can still clamp down. Protests are already waning, but that doesn't mean that the impact is over. Quite a contrast controlling uh, the information, all while citizens hold up a blank piece of uh, white paper. Yeah. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, on what is happening in China and uh, Xi Jinping's uh, loss of control or the need to clamp down even further. We'll see. Elliot, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Have you noticed the shortage in medications, especially for kids? Have you noticed that nobody's really seemed to be talking about it? Now, we all know why it's happening, because, of course, in a post-COVID world, people are sicker, there's more flu, there's more everything going around because we've been masked up for two and a half years, and that's not the case anymore. Our immunity's low, and there's the need for more. But why are we not able to get this stuff in and we've tried to get the canadian pharmacy association on this they've been they've been very tight-lipped we've had the ontario association on and again we've heard everything from uh, our manufacturing is overloaded we're just not uh, self-sufficient enough in this also in regards to bilingual labeling we can't just import stuff from the united states the way many of you are getting stuff sent up by citizens that are you know that are living down there so uh, at the end of the day this 
is like vaccine. We need something and we just can't get it. We're not able to provide it. And there seems to be little discussion about it. Let's bring in Ofer Barron, Distinguished Professor, Operations Management, Academic Director, MMA Program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Ofer, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Very well. Thanks, uh, Scott, for having me. Is Why do we have such a shortage? Now, I know, obviously, there's great demand. Lots of people are sick, but it just seems we're caught with our pants down again. Why is there a shortage of, of medication in, in Canada, in Ontario? Well, uh, I think you've given an incredibly great background on that. It's uh, poor planning and uh, somewhat uh, higher de- need than uh, typical. Uh, together, it uh, make us face a shortage, and especially in the medication for uh, kids, which are a little bit more vulnerable this year than the years before. As you suggested, they haven't been exposed to uh, flu and other viruses over the last three years because of a lot of quarantining and masking and so on. This sounds a bit like the vaccine debate way back when. We need it, we just don't have it. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure what is uh, what is the debate here. Uh, you know, ibuprofen is. There's nothing to de- debate about it. It uh, it is something that when you have a young kid sick, you, you uh, with a fever, you want to take the fever down. You want to take the pain down. So uh, you want to have access to this type of medication. It doesn't seem to be that big of an issue. Now, lots of people around the world are experiencing the same sort of thing that Canada is, but it doesn't seem to be an issue in the United States or, or, or any other countries that there is a, quote, shortage. Yeah, I, I think uh, this time of year, in, in every year, there's a little bit more flu than typical, right? This is the flu season, and it is a little bit harder uh, in Canada than in the States I think because of the winter, uh, at least in uh, Ontario, we had a couple of really uh, uh, relatively hot weeks in early November, then a, uh, a week which is relatively very cold for November, and this change in temperatures caught many of us, uh, caught our, the body of many, the bodies of many of us, uh, not used to deal with uh, with the flu, with the COVID. Uh, and other respiratory diseases. Uh, we've heard anecdotally of people here in Canada getting friends or relatives who are down in the U.S. to send them up product. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a shortage there. How much does the bilingual uh, labeling have to do with this shortage that we just can't send it across from the U.S. because it isn't labeled in French as well? Yeah, it, it certainly doesn't help. Uh but you know, as Canadians, we 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 made a choice to have uh, two official languages and uh, to respect uh, people's uh, language and so on. So uh, this is part of the price. Obviously, it's not great to have to pay a price like this, or, or when kids have to pay a price uh, on that. But I would also note this is not the only factor that uh, caused the difficulty. Um, uh, should maybe these restrictions be lifted uh, during times of need like this? And what other uh, situation do you attribute a lot of this to? What What are the reasons? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I'm I'm a, an operations uh, person, not a politician. Uh, and when I see a need uh, uh, for a product and the ability to satisfy the product, I'm for it. But uh, especially in medication, uh, this is there is a little bit more risk when uh, people don't understand how they can use, or more importantly, how they should not use a medication. So uh, probably a doctor would be better to answer this question with respect to the um, how adequate it is to import um, non-adequately. Do you see this as a problem for the rest of the cold season, Ofer? Uh, I hope not. I think that, uh, as you said, there's no uh, shortage um, globally, so we should be able to mm. uh, get our share and, you know, add uh, 
add the different languages on it as necessary. Oh, for Baron with us, Distinguished Professor Operations Management, Academic Director, MAA Program at the Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, in regard to shortages of medication for kids in this country. Oh, for as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. Have a good one. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, I was fascinated by this story uh, that came out the other day, and this is a, a, a Toronto police cold case uh, from 1983 that had um, just literally gone cold. No no suspects, what have you. Uh, enter technology and DNA and those ancestry-type websites, and boy, you've got a whole different toolbox, let alone a tool, and uh, it looks like somebody after um, many, many years, 39 years, has been charged. Uh, in the killing of two people in Toronto back in 1983 and this case that had gone cold now uh, receiving new light courtesy of uh, DNA testing and technology fascinating stuff let's bring in Carmi Levy technology analyst and journalist he's with us now Carmi thanks for the time I hope you're well hi Scott great to be here what are your thoughts on this? Because, again, correct me if I'm wrong, basically, somebody if somebody in your family or what have you puts up their DNA for one of these services to you know check your family tree, then it's sort of public domain. And then there's companies who will take this information and input other uh, stuff, whether it's unsolved crimes or whatever, to bring you perhaps to an, a family or a direction, and then the police investigation starts and ultimately asking for a sample and getting uh, a charge here. Is that what happened, Carmi? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, we see the ads all over the place. You know, 23andMe, Ancestry, MyHeritage. And this, of course, you know, because it's the holiday shopping season, you can buy a subscription to these services as a gift for somebody. And it sounds neat. You know, learn about your ancestry. Build your family tree. Make it easy. Learn where you come from. Uh, you know, uh, learn about, you know, possible risks to your health. You know, gain control of your wellness. I mean, all of this is, is all well and good. Uh, and all you need to do is provide a DNA sample to swab your cheek send it in and then what they'll do is they will build an entire dna profile unique to you based on your genetic material it sounds neat and it sounds amazing but and this is where the duality sort of comes in on the one hand that we can use this technology to crack cold cases and bring murderers to justice, I think is nothing short of miraculous. You know, I applauded when I heard that this story had been, that this case had been cracked and that this individual was being brought to justice after almost 40 years. This is the best of technology. The flip side is for you and me, once we subscribe to these services, our DNA is now sitting in a database from one of these services. And so what the police did in this case was they they went through these databases. They got a warrant and they literally dug through 23andMe and Ancestry and MyHeritage and all the other ones. And they looked for similarities. And once they sort of found a family of interest, they were able to use uh, even pr- deeper DNA analysis to go from the family to the individual. Then they located this individual, compelled him to provide a DNA sample. They he was required to provide a blood sample and they made the match and made the arrest. And so so on the one hand, yes, he's brought to justice. On the other hand, now with our DNA information out there, literally our, our genetic signature, uh, if the wrong people, if the right people get a hold of the police, obviously, they will bring criminals to justice. If the wrong people gain access to this, our lives can literally become a living hell. And that, I think, that it opens up a Pandora's box when it comes to privacy. So uh, it's all good to register the family uh, as long as you don't have any criminals in the background. Uh, or, <laughs> geez, we didn't know about Uncle Harry. Uh, yeah, we were, yeah, exactly. But, you know, we talk a lot, Carmi, about privacy and overreach and such. What should the public know before they start submitting the ultimate fingerprint. I mean, this is not your telephone number, your banking information. This is your DNA. Yeah, exactly. This isn't like a password where if for whatever reason that database gets breached, you're like, okay, I'll just go change my password and I'll continue on as if nothing happens. You can't change your DNA and your DNA is absolutely unique to, to you. So once it's out there, it's out there. You're not putting it back in the box. And so on the, in this case, you know, the police, if you did something bad, then guess what? It will catch up with you. If, you, if you're thinking of leading a criminal life, you probably don't want to sign up for these services. But in this case, this individual did not. 
his family members did. And so keep that in mind, even if you never signed up for it, that technology can still be used to find you. But even if you're a perfectly law-abiding citizen, let's say I just, I sign up for it because, hey, it's Christmas time and I think it's a great gift to get myself. Well, what happens at some point if this data is breached? What happens if an insurance company that deals with me gets a hold of this information? That can happen and then uses it, it to maybe deny me coverage. Uh, you know, do you think that can't happen? Of course it can. The risk is now there, and we have absolute control. If we don't provide this information and allow it to get out there, we don't allow that kind of misuse to occur. So I think we need to think really strongly about the downsides of what can happen if this information gets into the wrong hands, because guess what? It's data. It will. Um, and then think twice, maybe three times, about whether we want to actually participate in these in these services as well. Um, there's a whole lot of downside, not a whole lot of upside. Do you think this is resonating with users of these services? Do you think it'll make people pause before they start d- divulging this information? You know, it's funny, as these services have become more popular in recent years, I've been raising the alarm bells. And, you know, just in, in private, when I'm among friends and family members and colleagues, and when this comes up, I share my misgivings. I let them know what a what an absolute risk this is. And the response I always get is just a shrug. I think people are so <laughs> focused on... Exactly. And it's so disheartening, Scott. I just wish people recognized the clear and present danger to our privacy. Um, that, you know, we, we're allowing data, uniquely identified data to get out there and we don't realize the, the terrifying risk that we're putting ourselves at and this is the ultimate risk this is the ultimate kind of identifiable data because there's no going back from it and i think so yeah do, do i wish we were a little bit more worried about it sure uh, but the reality is we see the advertisement we see the slick marketing we're like oh cool family tree that's awesome and we sign up without even giving it a second thought and that unfortunately is going to get some of us, in, us into trouble i'm comforted by the fact that it's probably going to close a, a whole bunch of cold cases mm. in future though so um you know if it brings some uh, criminals to justice who thought that they were going to get away with it eh, maybe it's not such a bad thing but you and i may want to think twice next time Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist, talking about DNA tracking websites like Ancestry, assisting in solving cold cases. Think before you hand over the DNA, the ultimate password. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Appreciate it, Scott. Thanks. Because of what's been going on here at home, uh, not a lot of chatter recently about Ukraine and what has been going on. Let's update you on all of that as NATO has pledged further support for Ukraine and reaffirms uh, the vow of future membership uh, as they head into a cold winter. And, of course, Russia putting continuing to put the squeeze on Ukraine. Stephen Sedman with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network, and is with us now. Now, Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott. How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Thanks so much. Uh, Stephen, at the beginning of all of this, I remember President Zelensky saying, you know, we're not even really interested in a NATO membership. That was off the table pretty early on. Uh, why have positions changed with this? Does it matter at this point? Well, the war started in part because n- Ukraine and NATO didn't want Russia setting conditions or determining who could be a member of NATO. So that was always part of it uh so even if Zelensky at times said well that's not really what's going on here because it wasn't there was Russian aggression was beyond that uh it was always something that was in play and now it comes back because it's part of the bargaining that's going on between Russia and Ukraine that any war ends in a bargain unless you have un you know unconditional surrender and even in Japan in 1945 there was still some conditions that were satisfied that were negotiated ultimately and so one thing to do right now is to set the conditions where Ukraine could demand a whole lot and then they could give in a little bit in order to get an agreement that they want. And so that's why they're talking about war crimes, they're talking about reparations, they're talking about NATO membership at somewhere along the way. They might give in on a couple of those things in order to get the Russians out of the country. Uh, so instead of giving up territory, bargain in some other way. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think they'll give up actually the NATO thing either. I think this war has taught them that NATO membership is really, really valuable because you'll note that Russia has not yet attacked a NATO member. And so the, the Ukrainians now would like to be on the other side of that magic line rather than the currently the side that they're on, which has presented them as being sort of fair game for Russian aggression. So clearly that has backfired for Putin. Well, yes, it's backfired for Putin in a lot of ways. For one thing, if the war ends with the Russians being pushed out of the Donets and the other parts of uh, Donbass region, 
then one of the key conditions for membership to NATO is that you don't have an ongoing border dispute. Well, if they solve that border dispute by winning the war, then that makes Ukraine more acceptable for NATO membership. I, I still don't think it's very likely, but I, I do think that this war is making uh, it a little bit more likely than it was a year ago. Uh, NATO now uh, talking about beefing up defenses across Europe. Um, is this about saving Ukraine or is this about stopping the, inv- uh, the invasion of other uh, NATO uh, countries? It's a bit of both. I think that what Russia's proven uh, in this war are two things. One is they're less capable than we thought, but they're also more risk accepted. They're more willing to gamble than we thought. And so even though they can't defeat Ukraine, which means they probably can't defeat NATO uh, and even an invasion of the Baltics doesn't seem to be all that viable. Uh, doesn't mean that they won't try it anyway because they're willing to gamble on 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 these things. And so what you're seeing is as both a, a signal of resolve for Ukraine, but also as a way to reassure the neighborhood, the allies are going to invest more. Canada was at 500 troops or 450 troops before this thing started. They moved up to about 700 and it looks like they'll probably increase it even further in their deployment to Latvia. And that's being paralleled by what the British, the Germans, the Americans and other countries are doing in the Baltics, in Poland and potentially in Romania and Hungary and some other neighboring countries. Uh, NATO pledging continued support over a tough winter. Is the status quo enough to, 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 to solve this issue or are they just prolonging the inevitable? Uh, at the end of the day, do you just grind it out until somehow a diplomatic deal comes forward? Um, where do you see this going? Well, these you know wars can take more time. One of the things that we've become very impatient over the past 20 years and expecting wars to end quickly. But if we go back to the Iran-Iraq war, which was a long war, went from 1980-81 to 1989, you know, I don't think it's going to last that long, but to expect the war to be over instantly, well, that was what Putin thought at the outset. That didn't work out too well for him. So uh, we are going to see uh, this grinding out, but it's going to co- raise costs for Putin, and it's going to raise costs for Putin supporters. And at some point, he's going to have to realize that he's lost this war. That I don't think there's anything in the cards that show that the Russians are going to get much more capable uh, in the near future. And the Ukrainians have demonstrated that they have the resolve that no matter how many people are are freezing due to the attacks on the power plants, um, it doesn't matter what else is going on. They've proven that they're smart, they're capable, they're resolved, and they are much better led. And uh, their military is much better led. So I expect the the Ukrainians to continue to gain territory, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, But the Russians are going to keep on wasting their next generation of young men uh, until at some point they decide to bargain. And the bargain might be, we'll keep Crimea, you get to have everything else. And we'll see if Zelensky's up for that. Hmm. Um, we hear constantly of ongoing, whether it's Canada or the rest of the world, um, more sanctions, more this, more that. Why not just unload all at once and get it done or is that just not the strategic thing to do what unload nato onto onto russia no well not necessarily nato but everything that everybody has that they can within the confines of nato rather than continually adding to it over time over time over time and just you know again status quo are we making inroads well we certainly are making inroads that uh, the sending of the HIMARS uh artillery system for instance made a big difference in facilitating uh, Ukraine's uh, successful offenses over the summer and fall. Um, part of it is that we don't have a whole lot left on our shelves in terms of ammunition, hmm. and we want to keep some for ourselves. Uh, so that way, a we can fight a fight if we it comes to that with somebody, whether that's China, Russia, or some third actor. But it's also that we need that equipment for ourselves to practice, so that way we're sharp in case something happens. Uh, so part of it is we've given a lot. And we weren't really prepared for this, that the consumption of ammunition is at a much higher pace than we calculated, that we let our production lines, that we meaning United States, Canada, Europe, we let our production lines uh, go slack, that they weren't producing that much ammunition because it wasn't being used at that at this kind of rate. We didn't have as much lying around. Uh, but we give them a lot. And part of it is now we're looking around figuring out what else can we afford to give them. And part of it is that we started giving them some stuff, but not a lot, because we weren't sure that they were going to be able to keep it, that they, they might mm. get defeated quickly. And then we'd be just giving our arms to the Russians uh, via right. defeat. Uh, and that's not happening anymore. And now we think, wait, they can actually out their planes are still flying. That means that we can actually give them more planes 
potentially. Uh, now that we know that that the Ukrainians won't just be losing them immediately, or they won't be shot down immediately. Um, the the trick is how do you send equipment that's complicated that requires a whole supply chain uh, of spare parts and a maintenance system, uh, you know, training so that way you can right. keep the tanks and aircraft running. Those are more complicated than sending um, howitzers, which are you know basically large cannons. Do we need to offer Putin an off ramp? As you've said, he you know this didn't happen the way he planned. He's obviously retreating and such. Uh, will he just blow everything up on the way out, or do we need to offer him some sort of off ramp? What would that look like? Oh, I don't know what an off ramp looks like these days. Uh, I think that. It's not up to us to offer him an off ramp. It's up to him to offer a way out uh, hmm. because he has proven to be of bad faith that he he lies, that he doesn't follow through on his word, uh, that uh, he might see any off ramp as weakness and that might encourage him to keep on fighting. So he has to figure out or his supporters or his adversaries within the Russian political system have to figure out what w- what would be. Uh, a deal that would end the war and get them out of this because this is costing them a whole lot and it's not going to lead them to any kind of success. And once they see that in a clear eyed way that there's no, you know, gamble for resurrection, there's no, you know, you know, you know, uh, risky move that, that can get them out of this, that can get them a victory. They have to figure out what is the minimum kind of deal they can accept. And I think that that the thing that they can hope for now is, keeping Crimea because right now Crimea is at risk for them. Hmm. And and so that's that's what they have to hope for. And maybe they can trade everything else in Ukraine for Crimea. I'm not sure the the the, the Ukrainians will put up with that because the Russians have demonstrated that they'll treat Ukrainians very poorly through murder, mass rape, and uh abduction. But that that's seems to be the deal. Stephen Sadman with us, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs, Carleton University, Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network, talking about Ukraine, the Russian invasion, and what's next, how they get through winter. Stephen, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. All right, coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley and the Scott Radley Show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, I'm okay, but that noise you made during You Give Love a Bad Name, I'm glad you're okay. I thought you were having a stroke or something. Furball, just a furball. Okay, all all right. We're good. I didn't know the mic was on. Anyway. um, (laughs) uh, better, Better that noise then than something else. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, I'll leave it at that because you know me. I'll expand on it, and then the next thing you know, uh, we're CR- on Yeah, then the CRTC is investigating. So yes, again, again. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, so uh, here's an issue which has been up and, and raised a lot, and that is the shortage of medication, specifically kids' medication in Ontario, in Canada specifically. It's a it's a it's a countrywide situation. There is not a global shortage of medication. This is bad. Place. Planning, uh, so said Ofer Barron, uh, management director uh, at the University of Toronto. We knew that this was coming. We knew that this was going to happen. We get a sneak peek from down under of what the flu season is all about. It surprises me, though, that more people were talking about the shortage, but we're not talking about why. And I try to get the Canadian Pharmacy Association on this. They're kind of mum. We did get the Ontario Association on this and said the same thing. We're just not prepared. We didn't plan for the post-pandemic surge. We all talked about how flu was down and everything was down when we were masking, but we seem to ignore that it was the opposite was going to happen once we we got out of this. And there was many people that suggested we should be ready by this. Why do you think we just seem to be, uh, as Canadians, complacent with all this? We just sit in line and wait for our stuff like we did for uh, vaccination and such. And, and, and again, it just comes to not being prepared. It seems we have a government that's more interested in saving the world than saving Canadians and being prepared for things, whether it's a medication shortage, whether it's vaccine, whether it's energy, whether it's even a convoy well, protest. We're not. We don't have any plans in place. Uh as you were describing the shortage of the medications, uh, you mentioned vaccines. That's certainly one that was similar. The one that comes to mind immediately to me is right at the very beginning when we were hearing about COVID for the first time, you may recall, we gave away basically all of our PPE. And then yeah. we were caught say, going, well, why do we have no PPE? 
And and we gave it to China, by the way. Uh, yeah, and uh, where protests, by the way, are a good thing. You should try and block the roads and slow everything down in China. Is the uh, you know protest yeah. there? We want apparently. Uh, it's it's an interesting you know. Yeah. Anyway, but I go back to the PPE. It's it's is it planning? Is it not having information early enough, which I guess is planning? Is it, as you say, is it trying to not rock the boat in the world or look like good guys on the world stage at the expense of people back home? I I don't know. But I like when the PPE thing happened, I think a lot of people went, well, that stunk. But, uh, you know, at least we were doing it for what seemed like a good reason. But when you get one or two or three, when they start to pile up a little bit, I think your question about like, are we, are we planning? But then Scott, on the flip side, are we prepared? But on the flip side, then we had, oh, what was it? The other, a few weeks ago, this, uh, this other virus that we were hearing about, what the heck was that other one? The, uh, that never really amounted to anything. Um, that we suddenly announced we're going to put like millions of dollars in preparation for this other thing that never amounted to anything. So, uh, and you know what I'm talking, it, it was the, it was the other virus that everyone for about four minutes said that this was going to be the biggest next disaster to hit us. I'm just drawing a complete blank, but monkeypox, monkeypox, monkey yeah, yeah. yeah, and we were, which we can't call monkeypox anymore. Well, why are the monkeys upset? Apparently. Okay. That, that's, yeah. You know what? This isn't happening in any other countries. There's no shortage in the United States. I mean, people anecdotally are sending stuff up to their friends in Canada that can't get it up here. Uh, be, Obviously, I, we, Scott, we can't ship down it. There. I'm going to be down there next month. If anyone needs a Bring supply, it up. I'm willing to be a mule of children's Tylenol. <laughs> that's right. He's loaded up the backpack with Tylenol. Taking two extra suitcases. Uh, but apparently, we can't even bring it across an emergency because of the language barrier in the labeling. And I'm thinking, my goodness, can we not even look beyond that? for a couple of seconds to at least solve a problem. But again, nobody seems to care in Canada, just like our health care system. Uh, they, they don't seem to care that we can't take care of ourselves, like that, that we can't, we're not prepared for this stuff. I, I do think, Scott, I will say this. I do think that um, we do sometimes and maybe often care about the wrong things. We care a whole yeah. lot about stuff that's not important. And then if you yep. express real care about something that is important, you're told, come on, that, back off. That's, you know, that's unfair. If, I do think this is true. If we just use social media as a guide, for example, if we put half the attention and the anger in social media that goes towards incredibly stupid and unnecessary and really unimportant stuff, if we put half the effort of that and the brain power and the effort into things that mattered, it would be so much better. But we get so riled up. Up in so many ways about stuff that is ultimately inconsequential, but we really, really, really get riled about it. And then, as I say, you got kids who can't get this kind of medication. We're like, well, you know, it'll come eventually. Yeah, we live in a life of extremes. Uh, Scott Bradley coming we live up. In, we live in a world of first world problems is where we live, Scott. <laughs> yeah. Scott Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. We will try. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. So what you're saying, Scott, is my DNA can be used to solve crime? Well, congratulations. We found the easiest way for Gen Z to become a cop without going to the academy. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.